You're listening to Love Your City. It's a Movement Australia podcast. We believe that communities can be transformed as a unified church in every city or town lives and proclaims the gospel into every sphere of society. We'll tell stories from where this is already happening. We'll dig into the Bible to better understand God's heart for cities and towns. And we'll discuss practical strategies. Because no matter where you live, a gospel movement can happen. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Love Your City podcast slash vodcast. Third time in the studio, still getting used to it. It's cold outside and warm in here under these lights, so I could get used to it very quickly. Uh, I'm Sam Jackson, your host. Uh, thrilled to be joined today by Colin Studley, who we'll get to in a minute. We're all about city gospel movements, the gospel uh, at work in your city, and we want to do all that we can to help inspire that within your place, your town or city across Australia, and who knows, whoever's listening to this across the world. At the heart of a city gospel movement, uh, Tim Keller has this thing called a gospel ecosystem, and right in the middle of that is the vitality and the multiplication of churches. We want to see the spiritual renewal of our cities as well as the cultural and social renewal. And uh, we're here today to chat with Colin, who has some brilliant ideas about the future of the church as we emerge from COVID-19. We're thinking particularly about the Australian context, but I'm sure there's going to be uh, transferal of principles to wherever you are uh, at the moment listening or watching this podcast slash vodcast. Colin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Sam. It's great to be with you. Mate, you have been uh, an inspiration to me personally. Um, I see you. I, I don't want to say grandfather. Almost Let's that. say father. Because I think if I say grandfather, I'm <laughs> denying my age, not yours. <laughs> um, but you, you are old enough to be my father. Yep. Probably too young to be my grandfather. But uh, I just love the way that uh, you are not um, just drifting off into the sunset, Ooh. as a lot of grey nomads mm. might. Um, but you are investing in the next generation. Um, and and I've nev- I don't think I've seen anyone, maybe Ian Shelton comes close, but I, I don't think I've seen anyone as excited as you are about the future of the kingdom of God in our country. Um, and so uh, thank you before we start. Mm. So what we want to chat today is this, you've actually done a series of Facebook posts, which I think have been really, really important for church leaders to hear. And, and in having this chat, I hope that this message can get out a bit further. But I want to ask you some questions today yeah. about that. You talk about uh, the sorts of questions that I hear a lot of pastors asking at the moment. And these are the questions, how you phrase them in, in your posts. When will we restart the in-person services or something, a, a bit of a variation? How many times should we meet in our gathered form each month? So as we emerge from COVID-19 and, we, and the restrictions start to ease, that's the big wrestle at the moment for church leaders yeah. and church pastors. Now, you, you, don't, you don't phrase this as an unimportant question, but you, your, your argument is that that's not the most important fundamental question. So what is the most fundamental question that church, church leaders, pastors should be asking right now? I think the most significant question for us right now, Sam, is whether we can develop a relevant disciple-making culture in our local churches. I don't really care what size the church is. In fact, I think if the COVID-19 has done anything for us, it might well have liberated us from caring how many people are at our service and make it more about caring about can we deliver and develop a disciple-making culture in as many different places. So that's the number one question for me. Coming out of COVID as a pastor, I would be desperately trying not to actually start worship services, but before I had connected um, to everybody on this uh, important question of disciple-making culture. About, I think it's 
It's a couple of hundred years. I think it's probably because of the Enlightenment and what the Enlightenment did to the underlining philosophy of Western nations that we, we disconnected discipleship culture from worship. And it's just got worse and worse. So the, the gap between those two things has got worse and worse. And I think it's been our Heavenly Father's distress that has been like that. So for me, to see the pandemic come, I almost instinctively heard the Lord saying, now I might get their attention. And uh, so for me, the number one question is not whether we meet or how many times we meet or what we do when we meet. But the big question is, can we develop a disciple making culture? Now, don't get me wrong. If you d develop a disciple making culture, disciples love to get together and worship Jesus. They love and honour him and being together with their friends and other believers and, and loving on the Lord Jesus. That's what I want to do. So uh, a disciple-making culture is the answer and it's also the question at, at the same time. That's brilliant, mate. And, and I think that the time of recording this, um, over the weekend just passed, churches started to gather again. I did. Um, I hope it's not too late. Mm. <laughs> um, I want to pick up on what you just said about disciples loving together because you write about if, if you, this, this, this tension, does it need to be? Probably doesn't and that's part of the answer between a disciple-making culture and gathering for a worship service. You, you argue that you don't necessarily get a good disciple-making culture if you have a fantastic, mm -hmm. vibrant, brilliant Sunday gathering. Yeah. You, the first doesn't necessarily lead to the second. It does not. But that if you focus on a disciple-making <clears throat> culture as your primary purpose, yep. that you will, in turn, get a vibrant, yeah. enthusiastic, beautiful Sunday gathered experience. Right. Can you expand on that a bit more? You just yep. started to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, th this is... Um the Kool-Aid that the enemy got us to drink was that the real thing we needed to do was we need to have more effective services. We needed to be, have clever ways of developing our message and, and communicating a message. We needed to have great buildings. Um, we needed to have excellent follow-up and friendly people in the car park. And oh, I'm not against any of that. Let's have all that. That's fine. My my problem is that if we go for worship uh, right now, we won't get disciples. If we go for a disciple-making culture, we will get that. And because of that culture, we will get all the money we need. We will get all the leaders we need. We will get, all, we will get more worshippers than we can contain. If we stop, it's kind of like I think the Lord's saying, you know, if you want to grow a church, stop trying, right? Focus on doing this. Disciple make, building a disciple-making culture by investing. It's a simple process. You invest in people. You, you sit with people. You study. For me, the best place, place to start is the Gospels. So you start with the Gospels and you ask two simple questions. What's Jesus saying to you? Don't read it in a book. Inquire of it yourself. Develop people who can discern what the Scriptures are saying. And then ask the second question, well, what are you going to do about it? And if we could invest that at the instinct level of our, of our churches, what would happen is we'd first notice multiplication. Then we would notice our leadership and serving base would be widening. Then we'd notice more money in the offerings. And then we'd finally twig that we didn't have to worry about all those things. We had to do what Jesus said. 
Uh, so just to tease that out just one little bit more. The enemy has a very subtle way of deceiving us. We know that. And one of the most subtle ways is he has convinced large tracts of us from the 1970s when the church growth movement began that the answer was, was actually in some strategy we would develop. And, and I'm, I believe that it, coming out of the pandemic, more and more sections of the church are saying, no, 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 wait, let's build something that Jesus has asked us to build and let's see what happens. My guarantee, I would be prepared to let bet London to a brick that what will happen is if we develop discipleship cultures in churches of 20 or 200 or 2,000, we will get multiplication and it will blow the lid off our witness in, in Australia simply because we went back and did what Jesus said. Yeah. I see you echoing what Jesus said. You know, I've been, I've been uh, staggered by my missing of this statement where yeah. he said, I will build my church. Yeah. That's my job. Yeah. I give you the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Um, and so, I, like, like you just said, the enemy has made us think that we can do Jesus' job yeah. Yeah. and that he'll, he'll be at work in the city and we'll build the church waiting for all the people that he'll bring in. But it's the other way around, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, big, big obvious question then. And again, yeah. you st- you started, I think you started to unpack it a little bit. But how do we start developing a disciple-making culture? And I want you to think of a pastor of an established church who prior to COVID was meeting on Sundays, had programs going, all that sort of thing, which is probably the bulk of churches. What would be your advice to that sort of pastor as we're beginning to emerge? Where do they start in developing a disciple-making culture? Well, I could tell you where don't you start first. Do not preach at your congregation that they need to be a disciple-maker group of people. Do not yell at them. Do not um, guilt them. Right. I think that the strategy is stop trying to tell the whole church, but spot those ones, those catalytic leaders and people who are already on that kind of journey, because they are in every church, even even as small as 15, 10 or 15, you will find at least one where where they are. They want what disciple making culture brings. That's what they want. They want people to be instinctive with what Jesus is saying and then obedient to do what he's saying. They want that. And in every group, I think if a pastor could spend some time um, looking at their congregation and going, you know, there's that, that, there's got three or four who are catalytic in this area. And my encouragement would be to go to them and tell them that you want to build a disciple making culture. There's no way you can take the whole church with you yet. But I wondered whether you would help me by gathering around you. I'm not going to tell you who to do it to, but you as a catalyst, you bring two or three, four, no more and, and open up the Gospels together. Study, what, study who Jesus is. Get the biggest possible picture you can get and ask yourself two simple questions. What's Jesus saying to us? What are we going to do about it? And then do it. And I think what, what uh, that simple rhythm does is it's like the stone that's dropped into the pond. At first, the waves are slow, and yet as they go out, they get faster and faster, and they are more noticeable. And that would be what would happen. See, in, a, in church, if you have a church of, say, 30, 
30 people. If you had one or two catalysts who could create these little, these little huddles and they would study the Gospels, ask the two questions and do, just follow up, constantly doing what Jesus says, right? After a while, you wouldn't have just, say, two groups. You might then end up having three or four. And at that point, you've just reached the tipping point in influencing the whole. So you're actually not trying to actually shift the whole church as if into a program because the disciple-making culture is not a program. It's not a course. It's a rhythm. It's a life rhythm. And when you get into it, you begin to say, oh, this is what I, this is what I thought this was about, right? And, and you're just loving the fact that you're having this sense Every day, Jesus is speaking to you and you're discerning it. And then you're going out and you tentatively at first and you just do what you think Jesus is saying. And, and then you go, wow, that was, that was what, you know, I thought this was all about. You know, so you, you, you're really pumped. You want to get back to the huddle meeting next week and tell everyone, hey, I did this. Um, you know, one report from a huddle that I, I heard was a young man said, at the end of the study, well, he says, I think Jesus wants me to reach out to my father. I haven't spoken to him for ages. And uh, everyone said, great, you know, let's pray for you. And they prayed for him and he reached out to his father. I mean, this is, this is the stuff of champions, you know. This, this is the stuff you write books about because it's real people. Nobody told him to do that but Jesus. And then he went out and he did it. Now he's 10 foot tall. He's ready for what's next. And there's heaps of stories like that. So a disciple, if you want to change your church, shift your church. Okay, it's a bigger tipping point if you've got a 2000 member church, obviously. But if you want to shift your church, just start with the catalysts. Invite them to gather a small group, two, three, preferably two or three, no more, but four maybe. And then, and then just... Get into the Gospels, get the biggest possible picture, learn the two questions, answer them and go yeah. and, and scatter into the world to actually do what Jesus has said. Now, I think that's if you stick at that long enough, 18 months, two years, you'll change the church you're in. It won't look the same, won't be the same. No, no, you, you might not actually like some of the things that happen because you won't be as important if you're the pastor. So and believe me, I say that. I say that because I can remember as a young man where the Holy Ghost spoke to me one day and he told me, this is when I was a young fellow, younger than you, and he said to me, Colin, why are you a pastor? And I said, Lord, because you called me. And, you know, quick as a flash, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, no, that wasn't your reason. And then a little bit later, he spoke to me again. He says, why are you a pastor? Well, he said, well, I said, because, you know, we, we, leaders are needed and, you know, and I love the word and I love sharing about the word. And he says, no, that's not your reason. So when it came in the third time, I don't know what it is about the third time. But anyway, the Lord, Lord spoke to me the third time. He says, why are you? And I said, I don't know. Tell me, why am I? And he said, because you like being noticed. Wow. And in that moment, I then realized, what kind of schmuck am I? <laughs> Look, it, you know, I, I was a different man after that. And so pastors may not like Right? They may not like what they get. However, their role can then change to be more like an apest role, which, let's face it, that's going to help us multiply, but most importantly, 
sound authentic to Australians? Because right now we don't really. We don't. But anyway, I rambleth on. No, that's good. Uh, just to clarify, you didn't call pastors pests then. No. You said no, a pest. No, I didn't call pastors a pest. It no. might be appropriate Part for some. Part of the sure. a pest. None yeah. that I know, of course, but uh, I'm sure they're out there. Um, it, it seems, it's, this seems like a simple statement and, and a little bit. Um, a little bit common in the minds of pastors who may be listening to this and others as well. But I think it comes fully load when you when you argue that we shouldn't be looking to restart churches uh, with a gathering, but starting with community engagement. And I think, like again, the pastors that I know, that there is a busyness sort of chaotic factor going on with restarting services and launching. Yeah. I mean, even that, even that phrase of restarting means we've stopped. Yeah. And I, I think that even even that's a shame. That's probably a tangent. But restarting the focus is on all this stuff. You you, you write in your in your post. You talk about community engagement. I want you say some brilliant things there. I wonder if you could expand on those for us. Yeah. I look. I I I'm a church planter by experience. I've also done research in church planting, and church planting puts puts churches into the right disposition because they can't be trying to please themselves. They have to be engaging and contextualizing the gospel to the people they're in. But what happens to a lot of churches, usually between around the year sort of four or five, is that pastoral issues tend to become more prevalent. And so the planter is then particularly if they're a tier one planter, they usually have to withdraw because they can only take a church to that point. And if they stay there, a problem. But, but churches lose their orientation to the community. And when they do that, they begin a slow decline because if they're clever, it's really slow and hardly noticeable. But after a while, you, you begin to see it. Mm. Right? It's like the divergence from a line that's only, only fractional, yet after a while you, you begin to see it. And so whenever we as a church lose the fundamental disposition towards our communities, we stop worrying about how to contextualise the gospel and we subtly begin to present the gospel as, to our people who are turning up every week, as, um, oh, God's guaranteeing that you're going to get everything you want, when you want and how you want it and seven ways and you'll get this and eight ways and you'll have that. And, you know, so we, we twist the gospel away from its fundamental orientation to people who don't know that the good news has come, the good news about something that actually has done. And so because we don't have our community engagement, the good news shifts to good advice. And so the gospel loses all its power. So it's in a, in a church's best interests to actually focus, right, more on the community around them. In fact, to be an apostolic church and to be an apostolic leader. Um, so if I get nerdy here and carry on, you just stop me. <laughs> but, but it seems to me if you're apostolic, you've got a, you've got a strong grip on sentness. And in an apostolic church, even pastors are strong on sentness. You know, that they're normally about caring for one another, but they're also, in that context, they're strong on sentness. Now, what happens when you have, when you have a really apostolic church in a neighbourhood, they are more concerned for the people that are not in front of them than are in front of them, right? 
And so that the whole church is oriented to the community. And the best way for us going forward is to orient ourselves to the people around us. And some of the best stories you hear in Australia are of churches, simple churches, just little churches, small little churches. One classic one, just a group of about eight or nine people that I heard. <clears throat> they heard a country school where some of the kids would arrive without shoes. And so therefore, under the department's guidelines, couldn't go out and play. So they bought some, pulled all their money, bought a whole range of little shoes of varying sizes, shipped them off to the school so the kids could go out. That kind of orientation shifts the thinking in a local church, makes them more sent in their thinking, and then the gospel can drift back snap back into that, this is the good news. God's done something, made something possible. God's eventually going to resolve everything. But in the meantime, we're going to see the kingdom come, yeah. right? And, and that's because you never shifted on the orientation, your disposition towards the community that you're in. It's, we think that when we get to year three, four, having established a church, that somehow we're going to be able to Oh, it'll be all right now. That'll just take care of itself. It doesn't. Get your disposition back to that. If you're a pastoral pastor now, get your church to just to orient themselves to the people that aren't there. And you'll see a, a dramatic shift because there are all sorts of, the Holy Ghost goes before you. You know, we believe that about God, right? He's the God who's ahead of us. So let's go out where he is and uh, we'll have more fun in the church as well then. Brilliant. I said in the intro, I referred to Tim Keller's gospel ecosystem. Yeah. At, at, right at the heart of that uh, is a contextualized theological vision. And I love the way he, he phrases that. That's a big nerdy word, but we're, yeah. we're nerding together here. We are. Uh, but the, the non-nerdy version <clears throat> is what makes the gospel good news to these people. Yeah. And I love the story you've just told. The, the good news of the gospel to these kids is they can have shoes so they can go out and play. That's right. Now, there's people cringing at that as they hear this, but that's, that's part of the good news, right? Is it not? The, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> when we made... And I've got to be careful about this because I may get strung up here. But um, when we made the gospel only about salvation from our sins, we neutered the gospel. Yeah. We did that because the shalom means everything. The whole of life. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. And, and that means, well, you know, okay, I have my sins forgiven. That's great news. Yeah, I got this promise of heaven and all that. That's good news. But... But there's more to it because now I am engaged in the work that Jesus is doing in the world. The gospel is good news, not only about our sins, but about the life we lead. So, yeah, when we, you know, I grew up all right, in the Salvation Army and the, when the gospel was proclaimed, it was always about getting your sins forgiven. And the older I've grown, the more I realized we were only telling people a small fragment of the story. The good news was so much broader and so much more wonderful than we had made it. And that's why it's descended and lost a lot of its edge and become good advice. You know, oh yeah, if you trust God, you know, you'll have money in the bank. And as much as we all like money in the bank and God is a very generous God, yet if we, if we neuter the gospel like that, what we get actually is consumers sitting in our congregations. But when we orient ourselves to the gospel, we see the breadth of it. It's about shoes on your feet. It's about a roof over your head. 
It's about an answer for the woman who is in a domestic violence situation. It's about an answer for the child who has been trafficked. And I mean, we could talk about, oh, that wouldn't happen in Australia, but we know it happens in Brisbane. So there's no point in debating it. It's got to be an answer for that, because if it's not an answer for that, I don't believe it's the gospel, because Jesus didn't die just for sin. He there was life, you know? When he rose from the dead, life. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> no, I love this. Um, it, 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 strikes, it, it struck me recently that the, the, those early martyrs, they didn't die because they were proclaiming a gospel of personal salvation. They no. died because they proclaimed Jesus is king. Yeah. And there's a new kingdom that trumps the kingdom of Caesar. Yeah, and sure. so, yeah, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. Mm. No, no, no argument from me. Let, let, let's, uh, let's, as much as I'd love to stay on this topic, let, let's go somewhere else. Um, mm. You talk about uh, the importance of diversity within the church. And yeah. what I loved what you did uh, in one of your posts is you, you, you described each of the disciples, each of the apostles that Jesus called. <clears throat> And you highlighted their diversity. And I realized as I read this, even though I kind of on some level knew they weren't all the same, I think I'd, I think I'd bought into that, like the paintings and the pictures where yeah. they all look really similar. They've got the they same fashion sense. Yeah. They're all sporting the same beards. They've got the same haircut, all that sort of thing. They are uniform, but you draw out that they are completely diverse. Why yeah. do you think that was important for Jesus? And why do you think it's an important goal for the church to pursue intentionally? Yeah, yeah. It's the best advertisement for the body of Christ in the world right now. The best advertisement for the, the company of Jesus followers. It's not the money. It's not our worship. It's not our speakers. It's not our events or programs. It's not our good work. In many ways, it comes down to this. That when you come into our worship, we begin to find out together that the colour of your skin means absolutely nothing. And that applies to the white guy as well as anyone else. And so, you know, you get, it, it's not just in the New Testament either. You, that beautiful prayer of Hannah, who calls upon the Lord out of her distress. She's a black woman. If ever there was a time for us to, to be diverse and to accept our diversity and celebrate it and want it and make room for it and, and agitate for it and, and desire it, it's now. The ages, that's good. Male, female, that's great. But wouldn't it be good if our churches were an accurate reflection of the, the community they were in? But too often, they look like something that belonged to the 1950s. And so diversity, when, when, when it's present in the body, gives the body the, the breadth of the kingdom. Because you see, we know that culture goes everywhere we go, right? I'm a white guy. I grew up in the 1950s. You know, there's some people think that was the good old days. Um, and it wasn't, by the way. Um, good old days. Um, we, but, you know, so many of the churches that I grew up in, lovely people, but all white, mainly Anglo-Saxon. And I'm not, 
I'm not being critical of Anglo-Saxons or whites. Uh, I'm, I'm simply saying that diversity presents the body of Christ with the chance to actually be authentic in our communities. And when you, when you go into our communities, you realise just how absolutely diverse they are. And so I would be saying to pastors to pray that their churches become truly indicative of the cities and towns they live in. And, and diversity will be one of those big things, which I actually think because, because of the role of cultural Marxism right now that's advocating in certain, for certain things, the hidden agenda is actually something that threatens the gospel and the progress of the gospel. So what, what we will be far, we will insulate ourselves in a way from being truly irrelevant, right, by actually engaging properly with all races and welcoming them in. And that won't be necessarily in our services because our services would have to change in order to truly reflect the cultures we're in. I don't know yet how we do that, but I'm watching churches that are having a go and I'm saying that you people are champions, that you're prepared to actually put your own comfort out, lift your own liturgies, throw them all out the window and say, all right, now let, let's build something new together because it isn't in my liturgy any more than it's in yours. So let's build that. So the, this diversity question is is just one of those ones that's going to help us with our authenticity in Australia. Because I would guarantee you that government would take the church a whole lot more seriously if we were truly diverse. And that's just one aspect of it. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. I was in a, a small church gathering in Townsville uh, over the weekend and we prayed the Lord's Prayer in five different languages. Hey. There are only 35 people in the room. <laughs> that's good. Uh, it was brilliant. It yeah. was brilliant. I love something you wrote uh, in one of your posts. I'm going to actually read it word for word. It's, it's, it's a paragraph, so um, yeah. I hope you remember writing this. Um, so there is, I would argue, a case for church leadership to properly engage with the city of which they are a part. And in the process of that engagement, create these missionary pathways to the cities, towns and villages. In this way, we are making it as easy as possible for the disciples we make to get the right paradigm about the relationship of the ecclesia to the city, town or village in which they live. And it makes it as easy as possible for the city to see that the ecclesia is committed to its welfare and to see that we recognize our call as the church to act in love, generosity, hospitality and faith. Indeed, the pastors in this paradigm see themselves as pastors to the city. In these things, we will be able to keep the gospel kingdom paradigm both real, applicable, and believable. I've got to say, uh, that was music to the ears of us here at Movement Day Australia, <laughs> Movement Australia. But I want to ask you two questions about that. The, yeah. the first thing is, can you elaborate on what you mean by the gospel kingdom paradigm? I think that's important. Sure. I'd love to have you unpack that. And then from there, go into some practical advice on how we begin to create these missionary pathways, which I think is a brilliant phrase, by the way. So the gospel kingdom paradigm, yep. missionary pathways. Well, the, the, in dealing with the, the gospel kingdom uh, connection, um, whenever, whenever I'm with a church planter, one of the things that I spend time with them on is 
developing uh, a kind of spine around which everything else can operate. This is the spine that helps the church to stay focused on the right things. And, and it's this gospel, I, I do it like this, I, I say it's gospel kingdom. And gospel in the sense of the good news concerning what Jesus has done and what Jesus has achieved, what God will ultimately do on the basis of what he's done, but then the kingdom aspect, the, the, the nature of God's engagement with the world, not wanting anyone to perish. There were strategies developed, expressed in the kingdom about which those who, taught, who accepted the basis of what the gospel had achieved would instinctively go towards because that was, that was God's agenda. And those two things then create the spine around which every healthy church is built. Whether it's a simple church or a hybrid or the usual stand-up, uh, sorry, start-up, um, the, the, the nature of what makes churches healthy is not in their attendance or their money or their leadership. It's in that theological connection because that's where you get the right disposition. That's where you get the right understanding of Jesus. That's where you get your concern, your apostolic concern for those who are not present. That's where you get all that. So what happens is in a church, in a simple church or a, high, uh, sorry, or a normal startup, you get, you get that spine is what everything builds around. In a hybrid, however, it gets tricky. See, hybrids are community responses. So you, you see churches that are hybrids, they come up with a response to at-risk people, right? Maybe trauma, um, maybe violence, um, maybe immigration and, and, and the whole strain that migration can cause, immigration can cause you living in a camp for, you know, and then you come to Australia. And, and so helping people like this, young people, homelessness, you know, so you develop a, a community response, but you, you wind and integrate into that a faith pathway. Now, in most churches, what happens is that spine is threatened by the, the need to, that people pull against it away from kingdom and towards church, right? So they, they actually, you actually are giving yourself backache, right? Holy Ghost backache or what some of you guys, but you, you're pulling against yourself, against the gospel, against the kingdom. You're pulling against it to create church where the whole end, the, everything you're looking for is in church. Now that, that is why then you have to pull that back. That mission drift has to be addressed. You pull it back because if it stays there, then the slow decline happens. And if you're good, the decline is only very slow. If you've had a lot of power on you, right? So the Salvation Army had huge amounts of power on it early on. But when they lost that, the, the loss was only slight. And over a long period of time, you didn't notice it. But then it got bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And that's because you'd moved away. The, the mission drift had happened. You created church. I mean, in the 1970s, the Salvation Army even went so far as to say a Salvation Army officer was to be appointed to a Salvation Army Corps or church not to the town or city as it had been before. So you see how mission drift drags a church away from gospel kingdom 
towards that idea of gospel, but expressed in the ecclesia. So you've now shifted it. And, and uh, in a hybrid, it goes two ways. So that's why leading a hybrid church is so hard because it pulls against the kingdom towards the social justice aspect. You become more about, oh, I'm concerned about homelessness and you forget that it's in the gospel kingdom access that we operate where the power is. So in some, some places you get in a hybrid, you'll get they'll pull that way and that way. And so if you're leading pastor in a hybrid church and you have feeling like you have a splitting headache, you're probably right because you've got mission drift going both ways. So one of the ways you can uh, address mission drift is by making really sure of that access. It's a theological thing and you're thinking through the implications of what that means all the time. In a hybrid, I say to hybrid planters, every month make sure of that. To, a, to an ordinary church planter, I'll say every six months or so, check on that. And even then, they, they'll still find little ways in which they've started to compromise on that. Now then that, when that's in place, your leadership being apostolic, hopefully, they are more concerned for what's not there than what is there. So their eyes are on the horizon, right? They're looking out there. They see the movement on the horizon and they then create ways in which not they can come to us, but we can incarnate ourselves to them. That, and that comes back to the disciple-making culture because in the disciple-making culture, it's all about what is Jesus saying to you and what are you going to do about it? And so then the pastor comes alongside and says, let me help you create some space for you and, and help me create enough space through the hedge that you can get through, go and have some fun and do what Jesus has told you to do. Now that's a direct, that's a directly the opposite direction to where we've been going because churches, pastors have been responsible for explaining this wonderful vision and everybody coalesces to that vision. This is directly the opposite. But we are in a situation now in the, in the church in Australia where we need that. That's what we need going forward. And so that when pastors can help, help them discover what Jesus is saying and verify the nature of the calling, you know, ordain them in a sense, right? Yeah. Recognize the gifts and call on their life and then create spaces. That means you, you find now I know this person who's working in this area and that's what they're called to. I'm going to connect them up and help, help that person um, do that. And I think th this becomes, becomes counter to where we've gone, but thankfully the pandemic has actually opened a window for us now. And I think people are, are actually thinking that way more and more. No, I love that. It's, it's, it's sort of a 180 degree shift rather yeah. than thinking of ways to bring people in. Yeah. Let's think about how we send people out. I love it. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm sure it relates to missional pathways, but, uh, and I've heard, I've read about N.T. Wright and other people talking about how we're story-formed people. Yeah. How important is story in all this, um, the sharing of stories, the sharing of what God's doing? Can you make a few comments yeah. about that? Yeah. Um, the beauty of a disciple-making culture is that it creates story. Um, every week, people will have a story of what God has done, what God is doing what they got to be a part of. And we are a story formed people. And I love N.T. Wright as much as anybody in the room, I'm sure. But here, here we see the big problem with story form, that usually what happens in local churches is only certain people 
get to share their stories. So um, we need to make uh, it as easy as possible for people to be storied. And, and I think the disciple-making culture gives that because in a group of two, three, four, right, you, you can't hide. And so your story, people are going to value your story right in that place. That will give people confidence to start sharing their story. And then in the gathered context, what I think will happen is that everyone will get to share a story. So it'll be broader. And that, so the storiedness, if you like, of the local church, instead of being narrow as it is now, will broaden right out. I, I, um, as I was growing up as, you know, as a boy in the army, I remember the story of one of the movements, real, a, a really fine leader, amazing leader, smart guy, you know, university educated, just knew it, had it all. But he wasn't, he wasn't, his heart wasn't right and he knew it, you know. And he used to go from one place to another seeking it, listening to all the best preachers of the time. And the story went that what was the, the key for him was that a girl stood up in a Midlands Salvation Army Corps in the UK in the 1880s. And she said, you know, before I knew Jesus, she said, I used to sweep the dust under the mat. But now I picks it up and takes it outside. And, and George Scott Railton said that was the moment. So this storiedness has to go wider. The problem with the story now is that only a few people are, are, are they seize the moment. They're so articulate. They're so, they got a great, such a great story. And everybody else says, well, shut my mouth. I'm not going to say a thing. So the storiedness is narrow in the body of Christ now. So the way we can help that is by building a discipleship, disciple making culture because then every week, almost every week, people in those huddles will have a story. And so if someone was to say to them, when church was on, who's got a story, a missionary story to tell, they'll jump up and say, well, as a matter of fact, two weeks ago I did this, last week I did that, and next week I've got this planned. And, you know, so the stories will come from a wider range of people, from, from uh, people who are educated, people who are not educated, particularly, particularly from um, uh, men and women, boys and girls, who presently see themselves as having no voice. There is a, if there is ever a slight on the body of Christ, it's that we rob people of their voice. And this storiedness, then when we get, we're like this, you know, we start, we stop, we start, we stop. So then we go back to the disciple maker culture, that generates lots of stories and then we give voice to people. Even the simplest of those stories, then carrying the load of the Spirit's glory, as it were, yeah. becomes impacting. Yeah. yeah, brilliant, mate. I really appreciated how you closed out this series. Um, I wanted to say it was my favourite bit, but it wasn't because I found it the most challenging. And I t it's not always a good time when you're being challenged. But you, you closed with a word on character based on Jesus' yeah. um, character described in Philippians 2. And I felt like this is the most important thing. I mean, everything up to this point, we, we can. There's there's some strategies there. There's some practical suggestions, all that sort of stuff. And the in, and and the instinct of myself and I think of other pastors is to go out and figure out how to implement these in yeah. in our place. But if we do that before we get our character right, or if there's some character stuff that God needs to deal with, will be will be you know yeah. it'll be a waste of time. Um, 
So, but for the grace of God, I should say in yeah. there, because I'm sure God's worked through yes. <laughs> leaders who have had character issues. But yeah. um, what what moves you most about what you read in Philippians two about Jesus' character that you long to see formed first of all in yourself, Me, yeah, and then in the leaders who are listening right yeah. now? Yeah, the character question. Joe, I wish we didn't have to answer this one. It's a hard one, isn't it? Um, Philippians 2 presents huge problems for me. Because I watch the one I love and the one I honour as my master being prepared to abandon every right and every position he has in order to lead a subversive movement in the earth to overcome what the enemy has done and what we did in cahoots with him. And so I see the character of him. He, he wants what the father wants so badly that he gives up every right and every position he has and risks it all for him, for his father and what his father wants. I, that takes character because you, you know, I look at myself over the years and I would really love to say I was a man of character, but I know that there are things in my life which are not, which I do not rejoice in, attitudes, secret thinking, pridefulness. And I, and I long to have people like every human being does to give me a place to lead and acknowledge me and call me great things, you know, be noticed and all that. And what Jesus has been trying to teach me is just do what I did. <laughs> you can do it. I'm not asking you to do it on my level. <laughs> I'm just asking you to do it where you are. And, and this challenge about the, having the character to give up every right you have and every human place, you give it up if only to see his will be done in the earth. So the character question then in me begins when I let go and I assume the place of a slave, a servant. And I hold all that I want as lightly as I possibly can so that Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. And I think that the power in people's lives is increased their authenticity is increased and, and I think, well, let me put it this way. Why is it we have so many silos in the body of Christ? Denominations that don't speak to one another. People that won't go to the same conversations if you have any disagreement on doctrine. Um, people who think less of certain believers. You know, I... We're a crazy bunch, aren't we? The fact that the Lord loves us is a testament to his personality and character, isn't it? He loves us. 
And what we can do, I think, in the world, in the earth, will be increased exponentially if we can get past ourselves. And that's why the character question has to be answered. I don't need to be noticed. I don't need a human place of leadership. I just need to be obedient. And I hold anything I'm given lightly so he can take it away if he yeah. needs to. Yeah. For his sake, for his glory. And, uh, and that, if we can learn to do this, we will see the resurgence of apostles, prophets and evangelists in the earth. And then the fun begins. <laughs> Hallelujah. Love it, love it. Colin, I wonder if we'd finish, if we could finish with you praying for people yeah. who are listening. Um, you know, look down the camera and do that thing. Yeah, yeah, I'll <laughs> um, do that. We're just, just for people who have listened, particularly what you finished with there, I think praying for a Christ-like character to form more and more in the leaders, around, whoever's listening to this, yeah. uh, and the leaders of churches around our country and around our world. Um, to me, that this is where it starts and right. in some ways finishes. And so if you could do that to close yep. us out, that would be fantastic. Thank Will you, do. brother. All right. So... All you guys have been watching me for all this time. We're going to pray now. No need to close your eyes or bow your heads. This is not a religious thing. Heavenly Father, we know you love us. We know your concern for us has not dimmed. Your heart for us has not changed. There is no way you have given up on us. Your love for us and for the world is as strong as ever. And for all those who have heard me share my story, I pray grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, give my friends courage to do what has to be done. Give my friends strength, having given up what they have, have and placed on the altar, give them the strength not to take it back. Lord, help them to see that a life spent like this is better than any other way of life. Help them to be the kind of people that Australians will see and say, well, I thought I knew what Christians were like, but now I've met him and I like what I see. Oh God, I pray that we'll become in this country so believable and so authentic that the grace on us will be precious. I pray that the aroma, the scent we carry will be so sweet, so precious that everyone will smell the life and the royal blood we actually carry because of what Jesus has done. So Father, bless my friends. Help them and strengthen them for Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Amen. Colin, thank you so much. You're a, this, this conversation's been a joy. Knowing you is a joy. And, and uh, may uh, this conversation, as it's beamed out, uh, be a blessing to many more. Thank you so much for what you do in our state and in our nation. Um, thank you. It's a pleasure. And thanks so much for watching slash listening. Um, I pray you take the things we've spoken about today and see them bear fruit uh, in your city, town or village. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.